Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on Something You Should Know, why making a fool of yourself can actually be a good thing. Then, why liars lie and the fascinating science of lying. People are somewhat hypocritical even with white lies. In relationships, we think it's acceptable to tell white lies to those we're in a relationship with, but we don't think it's acceptable for them to do the same to us. Also, how you can predict the weather with your morning cup of coffee. And the privatization of outer space. A lot of companies are pointing rockets to the heavens for profits obvious place where there's lots of money to be had is in low Earth orbit, where most of the satellites fly. For the last like 10 years, there's been roughly 2,000 satellites around us. We're already up to 10,000. That number is going to go up to 100,000 by the end of this decade. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story, because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works? And so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello, welcome to Something You Should Know. Have you ever, well, I'm sure you have, been in a, in a situation where you felt embarrassed, humiliated, you know, you come out of the bathroom and there's toilet paper stuck to your shoe or or maybe, you know, you're talking to someone and find out later that there was spinach between your two front teeth. Well, it turns out that being publicly humiliated like that is apparently good for you. In one experiment, adults were asked to imagine themselves in an embarrassing situation, like being naked in the bedroom and discovering that the shades are open, and then rate how they would feel about it. Those who felt humiliated by the situation were more likely to be happy, pro-social, and generous. In another experiment, adults were shown videos of people in embarrassing situations. 
And those victims of humiliation who let it show were rated as much more trustworthy and likable than those who appeared unashamed. So it seems a little humiliation and embarrassment every once in a while builds your character. And that is something you should know. Interesting thing, lying. We all know lying is wrong, yet we all do it. Everybody tells lies, even little white lies that seemingly don't matter. I mean, if you've told your kid about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, uh, you have engaged in deception, harmless though it may seem. Some people obviously lie more than others, and other people are habitual liars. They can't seem to stop lying. So why is it we all do something we know is wrong, and what does that say about us? Well, here to offer some really interesting insight into this is Drew Curtis. He is a licensed psychologist in Texas. He's on the faculty of Angelo State University, and he is author of a book called Big Liars, What Psychological Science Tells Us About Lying and How You Can Avoid Being Duped. Hey, Drew, pleasure to have you on Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. So if we all know that lying is wrong, why do we do it? There are numerous different motivations for why people lie. And, uh, and for psychology, you know, we've looked at a lot of these in our research labs and published on them. And so getting away with something, you know, trying to get out of a negative consequence or for impression management, those are some of the, some of the major motivations for lying. Dr. Timothy Levine suggests people lie when they when the truth doesn't work and i think that's a pretty good reason to understand motivations behind lying and it does seem to be human nature i mean if pretty much everybody does something kind of by definition that's human nature that's right you know most people lie a lot of the developmental psychology research indicates around the age of about two and a half to three is when we see people lying and most people lie. That's right. And, and so if you look at lying behaviors, most people have lied in their life. Uh, and then it's a smaller group of people that tell lots of lies or the big lies. I've always found it interesting how there, you know, there's these rules, these kind of simple rules that you can supposedly use to tell if someone's lying. Like if somebody says something and they look up and to the left that somehow that means they're lying. But, all, but haven't those things basically been disproven? That's right. That's one of the most popular beliefs, even across cultures across the world, is this idea that gaze aversion is an indicator of, of deception. And there's a lot of researchers who have shown that eye gaze is not a reliable indicator of deception, meaning you know, people might look away or specifically up to the left, and that doesn't really indicate they're lying at all. But surprisingly, that's one of the cues that most people believe even today. Um, and, and there's shows for this. There's movies, television shows that I think perpetuate this belief. And the other part is we think that we assume that when people are lying, they're probably feeling shamed or guilty. And so they might be looking away from us because they feel that shame or guilt. When kids lie a lot, do they often turn out to be adults who lie a lot? Or is, is the lying in childhood often just childhood development and it disappears? A lot of the lying in childhood, it grows. And some of the research has indicated that teenagers lie the most across the development lifespan. But largely that 
goes away into early adulthood. And so for most of us, as we become adults, we realize the consequences of lying outweighs the consequences of telling the truth, though we still lie occasionally, often telling white lies. Are there people who lie and they just kind of can't help themselves? Like there's nothing to gain by it. It's just that they're so used to lying that, you know, they just lie because that's kind of their way of life. Absolutely. And th those are some of the individuals that I'm, I'm real interested in looking at that we find seemingly to be a part of this pathological lying group. You know, one of the, one of the things written about is called the Hydra hypothesis, where essentially lies beget lies. And a lot of individuals who, who indicate they're pathological liars will say that, that they'll, they'll tell an initial lie and then the lies grow on top of lies that grow on top of those lies. And it becomes really this bigger beast to manage than it initially was. Yeah, well, that's often one of the arguments for not lying is that when you lie, then you've got to keep track of what you said and the lies that you said and the lies that you said to support the lie that you told in the first place. And that's very hard to do. And so why don't you just tell the truth? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons most people, as we develop outside of the teenage years, we, we realize it takes a lot of cognitive energy if you want to try to get your lies straight. But for some of the pathological liars, it's not so clear that they're trying to keep lies straight. It's just lying on a whim in the moment. So finding some way impulsively or in the moment to come up with a new lie that justifies whatever position or whatever corner they're in. But also, if pathological liars are backed into a corner, you might say, or, or really the evidence is brought against them. Hey, this is a lie. And this is contrary to what you said. They do admit. Yeah, that's right. I, I was lying. Are there people though, who lie and actually believe their lie that they may have said something and you know, they said something and then you call them on it and they say, I never said that. Well, are they lying or do they really believe they never said that? Based on the definition that myself and other researchers use with lying, if you, if you come to believe something that that is a lie, then we'd say that's it no longer counts as a lie. So really the definition hinges on you believing something contrary to what you're communicating to others. Because if someone believes something that's not honest or truthful or matches with reality, then we would refer to that as delusional. And so this is an important clinical distinction that someone, you know, if, if I tell you right now that the sky is green and purple, when in actuality it's blue with some clouds right now, if I believed that it's blue with clouds and I tell you that it's green and purple, then, you know, I'm lying. Now, if I actually believe that it's green and purple, we'd say I'm delusional because I'm, I'm believing in something and I'm not communicating that falsely to you. Well, it occurs to me that one of the reasons that lying is so pervasive and that everyone does it is that there are lots of examples where it is a winning strategy. You can lie your way out of some trouble often, which is evidence that lying can be a real winning strategy. It can be a winning strategy for some. You know, the flip side of this is that most people are honest most of the time when looking at the research on lie frequency. Most people tell zero lies within a 24-hour period, but it's the smaller group of people that are lying in excess. And so if you, if you say, is, is lying strategy really effective? 
I would say not for the majority of people, but it is for a small group of people that, as I mentioned, might use it in their jobs, uh, in leadership, in administrative positions, in sales, or some areas where it can possess uh, or give them some advantage. And then on the flip side of that coin, you have pathological liars where they're lying is not giving them an advantage, but clearly you know, severing their relationships and causing distress. Well, that surprises me that you say most people don't lie. In 24 hours, they don't tell any lies. That Because that, that's just, I don't know, it seems odd to me. It seems like people lie more than that. Yeah, it was really the, the kind of the crux of what a lot of my research on pathological lying came from. And it's some of the work of Kim Sirota and Timothy Levine. And they looked at lie distribution and lie frequency. What was often cited historically for deception researchers is that people tell on average two lies a day. But when you, when you look more closely, while the average is correct, the mode or the most lies told, it's zero. And so Timothy Levine has what's called truth default theory is that most people are honest most of the time. And it's only those instances where we think the truth won't work that we lie. We're talking about lying, why we all do it, and the consequences for doing it. And my guest is Drew Curtis. He's a licensed psychologist and author of the book Big Liars. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Drew, it would seem that one of the reasons you wouldn't want to lie is if you lie and you get caught, you're now a liar. It taints you. It, if, if you told me this lie, then how do I know the next thing you tell me isn't a lie? And how do I know what I can trust that you say? For sure. You know, I think that's what I find interesting about the label of liar is that it, in your words, taints you. And so now... It, it, People like Nietzsche's quote, it's not that you've lied to me, but it's that I can no longer trust you. 
And so it's really the connotations of what that hinges on. And one of the games I like to, you know, ask students or people I interact with, uh, games slash question is if you, if someone lies to you, we call them what? And usually we say liar. And then I ask you to put the shoe on the other foot. If you lie, you do it because, well, and we rarely call ourselves liars. We say we lie because some good reason. I find it interesting. One of the the functions of us as humans is that others do this behavior because that's who they are. They're bad people. They're liars. But we do it with some reason. And usually it's a good reason to spare, spare a social situation, to make it less awkward, to spare someone's feelings, make them feel better. We have all these good intents in our, our mind of why we lie. But others are flat out bad people when they lie because they're liars. Is it a lie, do you think, if someone asks you, you know, does this dress, does, do these pants, does this jacket look good on me? And it doesn't, but you don't want to hurt the person's feelings. And you say, no, it's, it looks fine. It's, it's great. No, you're, you look great. And we call that a white lie because the intent is to make the other person feel good. It's actually some of the research others have done and, and myself with Chris Hart is people that people are somewhat hypocritical, even with white lies in relationships we think it's acceptable to tell white lies to those we're in a relationship with, but we don't think it's acceptable for them to do the same to us. So something like we want the brutal, honest truth, but others, we need to protect them and spare their feelings. And the research indicates that white lies are actually negatively correlated with relational satisfaction. So while we think they don't have a cost, they actually do. What could be the cost if, you know, your, your spouse wakes up and they, you know, they don't, their hair's messed up and they look terrible and you say, oh, you look great. And they don't look great, but, but what could possibly be the harm to the relationship in saying that rather than, oh my God, no, <laughs> you look terrible. <laughs> There's two potential ways that it can be harmful. One is what some researchers deem deceivers distrust. So the more we lie to others, we assume they're doing that to us. So even if I'm telling others lots of white lies, I'm assuming they're doing the same thing to me. And that can cause me to be distrustful of others. So that's one consequence for the liar. For the receiver or the, the relationship, back to the association of being caught in lies, is that you can't be trusted. So even if it's a good lie... You say, well, this person lied and, and they did it for me. Nonetheless, they still lied. So how can I trust them about other things they say? Or what else are they not telling me is where that may cause relational problems. Though so sometimes it seems that those white lies are not lies so much as, you know, I don't, I don't really have an opinion, so I'll just tell you what I think you want to hear. It's not like I'm deceiving you. I don't really... You know, when you say, do, how, do, how does this outfit make me look? I, I don't know. It, it looks great. It looks fine. I'm not really lying because I don't really have an opinion. Sure. Or, or how about stating that, right? That uh, I don't really have a, an opinion or fairly indifferent. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's a number of ways you could respond that don't necessarily communicate a dishonesty. Uh, you know, you, if you're 
saying you're indifferent or you don't have a strong opinion, I think that's a way to be honest without saying you look fantastic or that's the best out or, you know, you look the best in that outfit today. It just seems like that's better than what are you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) You're not going out in public in that. And I think that's the mindset for most of us. When we, when we tell white lies, we think that it's going to make the relationship better, at least in the moment. And uh, if you allow me, you know, one of the, back to the predicting future, you know, I did this with, with my son years ago, we had, we had purchased him a beta fish and it's the first time we had a fish in the family. Unfortunately, the water was too cold and had a bad instrument woke up in the morning to a lifeless gray beta fish. And I felt so, so bad about this. And and my wife did as well. And we were discussing what should we do? Should we lie to our son? And I go to the pet store and get him a new fish or tell him the truth. At the time I'd been studying parental deception and there's a positive correlation between once again, relational satisfaction and parental honesty. So the more you're perceived to be honest, the better relationship. So I said, let's go ahead and Let's just tell him the truth. So on one hand, parents in this situation, I think, predict if you tell the truth, you're going to psychologically scar your child or traumatize your child. And certainly that's what myself and my wife were thinking or wondering. On the other hand, we didn't know. So I went with the truth and I told him what happened and asked him, what did he want to do? And without missing a beat, He said, let's go to the store and get a new fish. Not emotionally traumatized, not scarred, not bothered at all by the dead fish. So I think that that's a situation where I could have predicted a negative outcome, but one actually didn't happen. You know, the truth worked fine. And in some ways it worked better than maybe years later. He says, oh, well, dad's always lying to me about fish because he can't, you know, he doesn't think I can take it. But that just, I mean, that... Man, that's a that's a minefield because the, you know what about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? I mean, those are big fat lies that everybody tells their kids. Yeah, and so a follow up that I did was on those things was Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy, and the Boogeyman. And it was kind of interesting the findings from that. There was no significant relationship between parents telling their children about Santa and parental satisfaction or dissatisfaction. And so one of the ways I kind of thought about this is maybe that it's it's deemed to be this collective cultural narrative. So it's not perceived by children as a lie. So was the case of these mythical characters with the exception of the boogeyman. So the boogeyman is perceived typically for behavioral control. You know, if you get out of your bed, the boogeyman's going to get you or something like that. And we do find that that was negatively correlated with parental satisfaction. What about, though, when parents say things that aren't necessarily a lie, but they're not necessarily true either? You know, if you don't study hard and get good grades, you won't get into college kind of thing. Well, yeah, maybe, but you might, you might not even want to go to college. So, and you could probably get into a community college. So... But we say those things to kids to pressure them to do well in school. Is that a lie or is that just parental pressure? 
for deception researchers like myself, we'd have to say, what's the intent? So if the parents are communicating something they don't believe to be true, we'd say that that's a lie. But I would bet that most parents are probably saying those things. Maybe they think it's true. If you don't do X, then you won't receive Y. So parents will use that for behavioral control or once again, the emotional control to make you feel feel good about yourself or encourage you. You're the you're the best artist I've ever seen. This is the best piece of art I've ever seen. And is that a lie? If they don't believe it, it is. Seems pretty harmless, though. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you've been to a museum, you've seen art that's better than a kindergartner's art. So it's <laughs> hard to imagine that that would be the best art you've ever seen. But to say it to a kid, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's it's kind of a gray area because you could you could rephrase it and make it technically truthful or you could just say that's the best thing i've ever seen that's right or or you could praise you know one of the things a psychologist we might do if we're giving some kind of psychological assessment is praise the effort you know and you could you could as you mentioned be technically true there's a number of ways you can communicate honestly and so i think the consequence you you mentioned it seems fairly harmless i think the potential consequence is once again where children are thinking well, my parent lied about this. What else can I trust them on? Or, and not just parents. I think once again, it can be intimate relationships or, or other relationships. The the tolls of, of dishonesty come back to trust, even if it's a little white lie. And that's the thing I think I really take away from this conversation is, the assumption is little white lies don't really have any consequences, and yeah, they do. I've been talking with Drew Curtis. He is a licensed psychologist on the faculty at Angelo State University and author of the book Big Liars, What Psychological Science Tells Us About Lying and How You Can Avoid Being Duped. And there's a link to the book in the show notes. Appreciate it. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate your time. It's a pleasure speaking with you. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, Something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You've no doubt noticed that there are private companies that have joined the space race. 
Elon Musk's SpaceX is probably the most visible, but lots of companies are building and sending rockets and satellites into space. It used to be that going into space was such a huge deal and so expensive that only governments could do it. So if private companies are now doing it, there must be money to be made, or at least the potential for money to be made. And in fact, there is a lot to this story I never knew, and I doubt most people do. Here to shed some light on it is Ashley Vance. He's a New York Times bestselling author and feature writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's author of a book called When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you so much for having me. So I think most people are old enough to remember that the only people going into space from this country were the people at NASA, that it was a government program, and that the whole idea of going to space, uh, as President Kennedy said when he said we were going to go to the moon, he said we do it not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And there was something very patriotic about it, but it was a government thing. There was no profit motive Something changed, so what changed? We obviously had this tremendously exciting era where it, you know space was government backed, but we were in the middle of this this space race and and did incredible things in the sixties and and seventies. But then we kind of got stuck, <laughs> and this became more of a, a bureaucratic um, exercise dominated largely by military and government contractors and and we built rockets the same way that we always had and we built satellites mostly the same way we always had and in space lost some of its luster and definitely some of its its you know its its passion and its speed and its its pursuit of new things and back then there was no talk about how do we make money on this so private businesses were not involved were they not involved because they didn't see the potential of going to space or because it was just so complicated and expensive, only governments could do it. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a combination of things. I mean, it was definitely expensive. Some rich people had tried in the even the late 90s, early 2000s to, to get into space to build rockets. They usually found it was much harder than they expected. And, and NASA was always looming there as really a, a competitor. Um, you know, it's, it's Elon Musk and, and SpaceX who launched their very first rocket in 2008, that really changed things and showed that that a private company, a commercial company, could do things differently. They could do things much, much cheaper than what had been done before. There was a lot of new materials and modern technology that could be put at play. And so there was there was this clean slate kind of idea where we've been doing things the same way for decades. Let's try something new. Somebody finally succeeded at it, and this unlocked this all this latent energy and for space all around the world when people saw SpaceX had done it. And was there a sense of like, did NASA go, "Hey, wait a minute, you you can't do that"? I mean, or or was it, "Yeah, come on in and and join the party." No, I you know it was a mixed bag <laughs> to be sure. So there were factions within NASA. I mean, you know, I'd say roughly kind of twenty percent, twenty five percent. Some of the highest up people at NASA 
they they encouraged SpaceX and and they formed partnerships with SpaceX to try and um, accelerate the development of its technology and, and commercial space more broadly. There was still this huge chunk of not just NASA but um, the government, the all the the military contractors, people like Lockheed and Boeing who affiliated with them, who who did not want to see things change, and they thought who are these Silicon Valley people coming in to tell us how to do space? They don't know how hard this is and, and how to do it properly. And so there was a pretty visceral uh, fight against, against this happening. And so if you were to ask Elon Musk then or now, you know, why, why, why go into this business of launching rockets into space what what is it what was the motive was it did he see the profit motive or was it more of an ego thing like he just wanted to have his rocket in space or what we forget now because he's the world's richest man when he started spacex he was wealthy but not not nearly as wealthy as he is now and in fact you know spacex almost bankrupted him and and he did have to turn it into a for-profit company which was sorted to its benefit it's moved so fast so much faster than than any other commercial space company i think in large part because it was like a fight for survival this company was not going to be bankrolled forever uh, my point is that this has become a capitalist exercise and the governments that control this stuff for decades are, are moving out of the way and among all these other companies some of it now is just just to make money on on rockets and satellites and data and communications and so you know, people are coming at this from, from different points of view. And so what is the profit motive? Where is the money for sh shooting rockets into space today? You know, there's there's different buckets of this stuff. There's there's the Mars people, there's the moon people, there's the space tourism people. The most obvious place where there's lots of money right now to be had is in low Earth orbit, where most of the satellites fly. And and you know, we we are going from so tradition for the last like ten years, there's been roughly two thousand satellites around us. We, we're already up to ten thousand. So we're on this exponential curve of putting more satellites in space. That number is going to go from 10,000 to 100,000 by the end of this decade. And, and so the opportunity right now is to build what I call like a computing shell around the earth. And it's full of communication systems, science, uh, imaging systems that are taking pictures of the earth and analyzing it all the time. And, and so to me, th this is the clearest place to make money. It looks like quite soon the moon is actually getting privatized and, and there's private missions there. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, I think it's anyone's guess stuff like Mars is still much more of, of just like a science experiment to me. So this isn't so much about conquering the universe as it is about much more practical things then about satellites and low earth orbit and the moon and, you know, closer to home stuff. Absolutely. I would argue the public's perception of what's going on is, is sort of been misplaced by the whatever the romanticism or excitement of, of Mars and, and space tourism. We are building just like in the early days of the consumer Internet. We had to lay all this fiber optic cable and build data centers all around the world to support our modern computing infrastructure. We're b building a very similar thing right around us in space. And so it does things like people have probably heard of Starlink, which is, is this space internet system that sends high-speed internet down from satellites to, to anywhere 
on Earth. So for the first time, we're going to have always-on, high-speed internet blanketing the planet. Um, there's another company called Planet Labs. They have 250 satellites that take images of every spot on the Earth every day. So not even governments can do this, but this this private company can. It's not like espionage. It's really following where buildings are going, where oil tankers are going, what's happening to forests in the Amazon. So all this very real data about the the sum total of human activity on this planet. And and so this this is where hundreds of billions of dollars to start building this infrastructure. Is SpaceX, that was the first time that a rocket went into space and came back and landed and could be used again, correct? Yeah, not not in those early days like we were talking about, but later SpaceX perfected these reusable rockets, which which many people in the traditional aerospace industry said you know, it was never going to happen. It's impractical. It's, it's borderline impossible. It turns out it's not. <laughs> and it consequently probably helps cut the cost when you can reuse a rocket rather than build one from scratch again. I imagine that saves money. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, you, you don't take a plane from New York to Los Angeles and then just throw it out at the end of the trip. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have a commercial <laughs> airline industry. So, you know, th they've shown they've been able to reuse rockets many, many, many times. They've even flown flown humans on, on reused rockets. And so, you know, they have now SpaceX... This was a startup just 20 years ago. They now have the, the longest track record of the most successful launches in a row. They launch more than pretty much all other nations combined. And they're also the world's largest satellite manufacturer now and, and account for about, I don't know, it's probably about 60 or 70 percent of all the satellites in space. So right now, who are the players in the game here? Well, you have SpaceX that is the, the dominant force among the commercial players. You've got nation states like, like China, which is barging ahead quite quickly. But then you've got, people don't know this, but you've got rocket startups and satellite startups all over the world. Uh, SpaceX's nearest competitor, the most successful other commercial rocket company, is called Rocket Lab. They're actually based in New Zealand and were start, was started by a guy named Peter Beck, who did not even go to university. So this, this is a guy, he worked at a, a dishwasher and an appliance maker as an engineer and just did rockets on the side. And he's built really the world's cheapest, best engineered small rocket called Electron. And they've flown that about 40 times. So it doesn't take humans, but it takes satellites to space all the time. Um, Planet Labs is is the kind of the dominant um, small satellite maker. So as I mentioned, they've they've covered the earth with 250 imaging satellites and, and take photos of, of everywhere on earth all the time. And, and then right now we're in this race where there's about 10 other rocket startups all vying to, to prove themselves out. And there's about 100 satellite makers doing all kinds of different things. It, it, isn't Jeff Bezos involved in this somehow? So Jeff Bezos started a company called Blue Origin almost the exact same year that Elon started SpaceX. And Blue Origin's story has not been as glorious as SpaceX's uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They, they are doing some space tourism stuff now, so they'll fly you to the edge of space for a couple of minutes and let you float around. They've been dreaming of building a big rocket like SpaceX to carry satellites and, and humans one day. Um, but while SpaceX has done this many, many times, Blue Origin has yet to fly that rocket. They're hoping to start flying it next year. 
Why is it that it seems that it's rich people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who who play in this arena? Like, is there, it's like a rich boys game kind of thing. Well, we it was we've tr- we've, we've transitioned to slightly less rich boys <laughs> that are funding this stuff. You know, it was basically governments for about seventy years. Uh, then you had these billionaires. You had Elon, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Paul Allen from Microsoft. All took a crack at at various things. Elon was the only one who was really successful at it with SpaceX. And then over the last six to seven years, what's happened is that venture capitalists who who are rich, but this is we're not talking like billions of dollars anymore. You can start a satellite company for um, a few million and, and a rocket company cost you a bit more, but but this is, you know, this is being funded by um, pretty typical investors who just invest in, in tech things. And so the, the price to get started and the price to actually get to space and do things in space has fallen dramatically. And can I, if I wanted to put a satellite or, you know, just a time capsule or just I wanted to put something in space. I could call up SpaceX or one of these other companies and rent space on a rocket and they would launch it for me. You can literally enter your credit card information now on a website and do that. The the cheapest to get something into space is about probably about $250,000 is your starting price, which sounds maybe like a lot, but your starting price just say six years ago was, was closer to about $60 million to get a spot on a rocket. And, and so right now we're seeing this flourish of activity. I mean, you could do something, you know, as a hobbyist if you wanted to, but really that, that reduction in price means we have a lot more satellite companies that can try out ideas and we have a lot more scientists that can try out their ideas, you know, to, to fly an experiment for $250,000 is not, not a huge ask, but $60 million made it almost impossible. Well, you, you mentioned the number, I don't remember about how many satellites are up there, but I mean, at a point, doesn't it get like, it's just, okay, we're out of room that there, we can't have any more. They're going to crash into each other. We, now we got to do something else. Yeah, this is partly why I wanted to write about this is is that I don't think people realize what's coming <laughs> at all. Uh, you, the we're probably not going to run out of room. It is it is quite quite spacious up there. Um, sorry, uh, but there is this risk of collisions. A lot of these satellites are flying in similar paths, similar orbits. Um, we have never lived in this world where you have to manage 100,000 objects in space. If something collides with another object, there's this thing called the Kessler syndrome, where you basically create kind of a, a cascading debris field that just grows and grows and grows as more things bash into more things. And so this is the big concern the companies are motivated to not have this happen as it would ruin low earth orbit and, and all their investment and, and governments have similar motivations. And there are now startups that are, are tracking all of this debris. And I, I don't know if it makes people feel better or worse that there's startups doing this as opposed to uh, governments, but, but that's the reality of the situation. Well, right. With, with airplanes, you've got private airplane companies, but you've got the FAA, the air traffic controllers kind of, keeping everything separated and safe and everything, but there's no FAA for this. 
The government, the U.S. government in particular, has tracked objects in space historically, although not as well as these startups do now. They they have specialized antennas that see more objects and much much smaller objects. the The government has tried to put some sort of mechanisms around all this to to keep things functioning. But what I found, and I write about a lot is that you know they were operating for decades in a regime where maybe one rocket from the united states went up a month and now we are sending rockets up almost every day every other day we're going from sending up about 30 satellites a year to sending up thousands of satellites a year and, and so what i found is that the regulatory regimes are just not keeping pace at all with with how fast commercial space is moving we're sending up rockets every day? Yeah, so SpaceX is really, again, sort of the, the pace setter here. And, and for, for decades, I mean, any, the European space program, Chinese, American, really one rocket a month was, was the typical cadence. If, you know, maybe one year you got like 16. SpaceX throughout this year, through, throughout 2023, is running at about every other day right now with a rocket. And where do they send them up from? It's a mix of spots, mostly Florida and California. And then now SpaceX is building their new, for their giant rocket that they're working on called Starship. Um, that's in South Texas. Rocket Lab flies often from New Zealand and also from Wallops Island near Virginia. And so those, are, those would be the prime spaceboards for U.S. companies. Talk about the company Planet that you write about in your book. That was, that's really interesting. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, so Planet's one of the most interesting companies I've ever run across. Um, for instance, so they have, you know, when you go on Google Maps, uh, most of those images are quite old. And, and, and if you're in a big city, you think, oh, this is really well covered. But that's only because it's a big city. You know, if, if you spread out across the world, there's not that many photographs. And so Planet has mapped every road on earth very well they have count they have mapped every single tree so they have a they have an actual count of all the trees on earth not only that they use ai software to figure out what types of trees they are which means you can figure out the the biomass of the trees and how much carbon dioxide they pull in and so they're sitting there watching places like the amazonian rainforest to see when there's illegal cutting of the forest they watch um, like ukraine is probably the best example that that people could relate to you know, in the days leading up to the war, the Russians said, we're not going to attack Ukraine. The U.S. said, we are going to attack. People had to choose who they were going to believe. Planet had all these images of the troops in Belarus amassing on the border. It was Planet's images that we all saw on TV and newspapers of the Russian convoys being stuck on their way to Kiev. Um, you know, in terms of like something like the the cars, you can literally count how many cars are in Walmart parking lots during back to school shopping season and investors make decisions based on how much activity they see with things like that. And can I see those images or, or that's proprietary? No, that's the fascinating thing about Planet. Anyone can hop on Planet's website. You can get more recent, better images when you pay for their service. But anyone can hop on onto their technology and poke around and, and have a look. And and now this information is it's essentially open source. It's it's out there for people to view. There's all kinds of analysts who you know work for nonprofits um, who are using these images and, and publishing information um, about what's happening in the world, and it's not not metered out by governments anymore. Do you know where I go to find those images? 
Yeah, it should be just planet.com. So the the landscape or the spacecape has changed dramatically where it, it used to be that, you know, governments pretty much controlled what happened in space around us and not not anymore. This balance of power that existed for decades where only a handful of slow-moving governments really controlled space is over. And and it is obvious now that, you know, as we've gone from 2,500 satellites to 10,000 in just the last three years, almost all of those new satellites are commercial satellites. And, and the commercial companies now dominate this. It's going to be interesting to see how government players react to this. A country like Russia, which is a traditional space superpower, has no commercial space startups at all. And its its space program has been on the decline for many years. And, and the, there's huge questions. Will they be a rational actor in this new environment? Uh, the U.S. is lucky. Our space program was on a similar decline. It just so happens that SpaceX succeeded and, and inspired all these other companies. We now have far more commercial space startups than any country on Earth. So, you know, it's, it's interesting times to see how this all plays out. Well, and as, as you pointed out, it, it's so fascinating because who knows how the story is going to unfold and who the players are going to be in 10 years from now. If we have this conversation in 10 years again, how things will be different. I've been speaking with Ashley Vance. He is a New York Times bestselling author. The name of his book is When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. If you'd like to read it, you can get it at Amazon, and there's a link to the book in the show notes. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. You know, you can actually sort of determine whether or not you're going to need an umbrella today by looking at a cup of coffee. You see, as you're pouring your coffee into your mug, take note of the tiny little bubbles that rise to the surface. If the bubbles move rapidly to the cup's edge, it's going to be a nice day. That's because high pressure pushes the bubbles outward to the edge of your mug. High pressure indicates good clear weather. If the bubbles stay towards the center of the mug, the pressure is dropping and clouds and rain are probably in the forecast. I'm not sure that's how the National Weather Service predicts the weather, but it's one way you can. And that is something you should know. Ratings and reviews are helpful to every podcast, but you don't have to leave a rating and review for every podcast, just this one. Please leave a rating and review if you have a moment. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.